You're listening to the Women's Hope Podcast of the Masters University with Dr. Shelby Cullen and Kimberly Cummings. Join them as they bring hope and encouragement through 25 years of combined experience in biblical discipleship and counseling as ACBC counselors. Shelby and Kimberly provide biblical and practical wisdom by coming alongside women with the teaching and resources necessary to grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Women's Hope Podcast. This is Kimberly, and I'm here with my pal Shelby, and we are excited to be with you today. Absolutely. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Kimberly. Good, good morning. morning, Scott, our our friend that helps us sound good. <laughs> <laughs> He's the best. <laughs> so, Shelby, I want to talk to you about something. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. H- heavy topic today. <laughs> I want to talk to you about Mexican food. Okay. So, we were basically raised as next-door neighbors. You were raised in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was raised in Texas. Right. And uh, we have something in common. We both love Mexican food. Absolutely. Yeah, you're posting pictures of your Mexican food, and I, I'm, I'm and maturing, you're coveting. Is that I'm, I'm maturing this is going? through it. <laughs> I'm growing through it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we both love Mexican food, and the reason I even bring this up is because you had recently gone to New Mexico, and mm-hmm. you posted pictures of your food. <laughs> and it made me homesick. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, California Mexican food is different than New Mexican, mm-hmm. which is different than Tex-Mex. You know, they all have their nuances. But New Mexican food and Tex-Mexican food or Tex-Mex are very similar. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that you posted a picture of was the sopa pias, which you cannot get here. And when you ask at a restaurant, they look at you like you're from another world. They've never <laughs> even heard of them. So tell me a little bit about sopa pias. <laughs> well, they are otherworldly, but no, <laughs> no, I, I'd be happy to because I was brought up eating them. I absolutely love them. And they're pretty unique. They're really unique to the Mexican cuisine, new Mexican cuisine. But I think the best way to describe it to our listening audience, of course, you can Google anything now to get a visual. But a sopapilla, if you just can just imagine a piping hot, hollow pillow, a fried dough. (laughs) Okay, so get that image in your mind. And then um, think about it being filled with just a delicious honey flavor. They use amber honey a lot in New Mexico, but it's just a delicious staple that I grew up on. It's very traditional because a lot of the New Mexican food that we make is very rich, you know, and so the sopapilla is meant to be sort of the sidekick to the meal. It's like our bread. So you go to restaurants out here, you get a bread basket. Well, we get a sopapilla basket. Yes, (laughs) yes. And, um, I've actually looked up the history on sopapillas because I always wondered how in the world did that even get here? Why? You know, what is it? Where is it from? And it's actually a descendant of, uh, well, at least food historians believe this. I mean, people can fact check, but they think that it is uh, a descendant of an olive oil fried dough that is from southern Spain. So they think at one point, you know, we had some descendants from Spain come into the New Mexico area back in the 1500s, and they kind of brought, well, as you can imagine, brought their own cuisine, and we somehow adopted it 
at some point. But guess what? You said that we can't find it out here. But Sean and I found a restaurant that serves it in California. And we are going. (laughs) We are going. (laughs) Yeah. There is a place. And we went. And we talked to the owner and got her whole story. So you and I and David and Sean were... We're going to go, and we're going to have dinner, and I'm going to introduce you to the stuffed Sopapilla. I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) Well, and, you know, we both like the spicy side and green chilies, Mm -hmm. you know, love them. And so there's just that beautiful, sweet, and, you know, spicy thing going there with That's true with you know you That's have true. the the sopapilla and then you also have you know like you said it is rich but it is also hot and so i just love how uh, they work together yeah yeah so um i can't wait for that road trip we're really looking forward to that and when we saw you guys last night it was like yes we are totally <laughs> we are totally doing this so I also want our readers to have your sopapilla recipe. Okay, So sure. I will post it on our Facebook group. And women, if you haven't joined our Facebook group, it's Women's Hope. And you can go to that and sign up. And we'll put that up in the next couple of weeks for you. And then you can make them for your family. And you will just feel like you're part of our family. So I think uh, that's fun. Yeah, I think that'll be a fun thing to share and just get your honey ready and be ready for a treat. Texas, we always ate them for dessert. Yeah, they serve them that way because, you know, we had Chevys out here for a long time. And I saw and I know that's from Texas. And I saw I saw it on the menu as a dessert. So I when I would go to Chevys, I would say, hey, can you bring that out? We're going to have a backwards dinner, I guess. So (laughs) yeah, eat dessert first month. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll share that with you ladies. But we have already talked about and shared how feminism has crept into the church, especially in the last 100 years. And we did a brief episode explaining the egalitarian view as well, as well as their interpretation of Scripture and how they get to their position. But now we want to speak about complementarianism. What a beautiful thing to talk about after we just talked about the complimenting of the Sopapilla and the Mexican food. I love it. I love it. I love it. So we want to explain what it is, what is taught in scripture regarding complementarianism, and how does it apply to our marriages? How does it apply to church life? And really why order is so important. So Exactly what is complementarianism? It is the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or to complete. It's not complement with an I, it's complement <laughs> with an E. Yeah. We complete one another, we complete each other. Complementarians believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful. They're meaningful distinctions that when they're applied in the home and in the church, it promotes a harmonious spiritual health of both men and women. Mm -hmm. And it is a beautiful thing. And I can say with confidence and joy, I see that at my church and love it. I have an elder who's over the women's ministry that I'm over, and actually, he graduated from the seminary yes, he last did. night. Wonderful and, man! Oh, you know, I I love 
the support that we receive from our leadership Amen. and the guidance. And it is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it really, I can come to them with any of my concerns, and they're going to guide me scripturally. And so I am so thankful that I have that in my little church. It has been such a beautiful thing to see scripture played out and the beautiful experience that comes from it. So when we embrace our divinely ordained roles of men and women, it really is furthering the ministry of God's people, and it allows men and women to reach their God-given potential, and God is glorified. And that's the goal, right? Absolutely. He is glorified. The actual word, complementarian, though, we don't see it in Scripture. And it is an encapsulation of this theological view of God's design for man and woman. We don't see the word Trinity in Scripture, right? But we know what it means when we see the word Trinity. It is speaking of the Godhead, three in one. And so when we see the word complementarian spoken about in various, you know, articles, books, even like when I read Dr. MacArthur and Mayhew's systematic theology book, their biblical theology book, you see that they come from everything that they're teaching there from a complementarian view. And they tell you that from the beginning. So when they say that, I understand that what they're saying. You know, and so this is why we use this word. This is why we have this word. It carries different nuances, but we can always look to scripture and see what God says about us and how we are to respond to him in our homes and our churches. But I just want to make it clear that the scripture is our authority. And while we may see many applications of the complementarian view being played out, we remember that we always have the plumb line of Scripture as our interpretation, and there may be other applications, and in that we always show grace when we differ. Amen. I love that. I love that. I think that that's so Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. because I think we get in little battles that are unnecessary over things that are applied and not things that are thus saith the Lord. There you go. I so love it. we want to show grace. We want to be an example of our gracious Lord. So the complementarian view starts in Scripture in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And it says that God created humanity, male and female, in his own image, And ladies, if you are in a place where you can open your Bibles, we would love for you to just look at the scripture with us because we retain it better and we're we're being Bereans then, right, when we check. So Genesis 1 says, beginning at verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man, this is verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So, Genesis 2.18, turn a few pages contains further detail 
that God created Eve specifically to complement Adam. And it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man, Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs out of the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, whoa, man. Whoa, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember hearing that growing up. Yeah. So for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So in this passage that I read, there was a heightened sense of aloneness that Adam became aware when he named the animals, right? They all had mates. You know, he's seeing that, you know, there's something there for them, but not for him. Right. So there's this 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 idea of, where's mine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, so God said that this was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. That aloneness was not good. And so he created Eve as a helper suitable. Now, that word helper suitable... Has, Lots of controversy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has come under great debate. I've read the articles. I've read the ones that were presented at ETS regarding other words that could be used. Hmm. But my concern with that is that they're allowing the culture to change the words that we use because of where our culture is right now and opposed to taking that word that has been used for centuries, that is a beautiful word. And it's so beautiful. As a matter of fact, the word Ezer in Hebrew is one of the names for God. Mm -hmm. So I think it's safe to say you and I are most like God when we imitate him as helpers to our husbands. Absolutely. And so I don't think we need to change the definition, ladies. Are they wrong? Maybe not. But is it necessary because people have a wrong view of what a helper is or a low view of what helper is? No. I think we need to change our view of helper, not change the definition. Yeah, I love it. So the two genders are therefore part of God's created order. Order is not a bad word. (laughs) Any modern day blurring of the genders or distortion of the roles is a result of the fall. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect as God designed it, 
But the fall distorted these things that we look at now through sin-stained lenses. God's design for harmonious relationships between male and female with the appropriate ordering and distinction was distorted by sin. And so we see that there were consequences to that in Genesis 3.16. And there is much debate Yes. As well, over what that really means. And my husband and I had a great conversation about <laughs> it this morning. It was so good because he took many years of Hebrew yeah. at school. And just for him to explain some of the nuances there of the couplet in, those, in that passage of that actual, just that verse, verse 16. And just really to help me see that, you know, we are coming at this as consequences and consequences are hard, mm-hmm. and consequences are bad, <laughs> and consequences are evil. <laughs> and so when I choose to step out of that design of order of, hmm. of my husband and t- take charge, just like Eve did, right? right? Right. There's consequences. Absolutely. So That's great. Hmm. It really is. Only by the grace of God and the work of Christ in our lives that participating in biblically-led churches and biblically-led homes and relationships that we are able to show and restore God's original purpose. And we know that that's not going to look perfect, right, Mm -hmm. this side of heaven, But you're going to take us further to explain why it is so important that we model this. Mm -hmm. And Shelby, I really want you to take us and show us the marriage side of complementarianism. And I want you to go to Ephesians 5. Absolutely. And let's look at that. Yeah. Why don't... Why don't we go ahead and open up to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to go ahead and read. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it's so well worth. Uh, we want our our topic, uh, what we talk about, what we discuss to flow out of what Scripture is saying. And so Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start in verse 21. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, of course, writing to believers. And so this is exhortation to believers in particular, and he starts out in verse 21 by saying, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And so really, you just get a really wonderful picture just in this passage alone that reminds us as believers important truths concerning headship and submission in marriage. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be more clear. I think if you were just to observe the text, you can glean those things without going pretty deep. But not only does it give you a picture of headship and submission in marriage, it's really giving the believer a picture of their relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the church. And so it's it's just a fun, fun passage to kind of pull apart. But I'm going to start with headship. I think it's an important topic to start with. And, you know, it's pretty clear. Paul does say in that passage that the husband is the head of the wife. So simply put, in the marriage union, the husband holds the title head or leader. Mm-hmm. He's told that he's to be the head of his own wife. And if you were to look at that word in the original language, actually, Paul has the idea of protector, if you're going to look at the you know, essence of the word. But what's fascinating is Paul makes an analogy between the man's headship over his wife and Christ's headship over the church. Um, in that second part of verse 23. So in other words, Christ is the Savior and the head of the body, his body. And so a husband would be the head or protector of his own wife, you know, as they're both in a one flesh relationship. We see the same thing being taught elsewhere in Scripture. We want to be good (laughs) Bible studiers who, I mean, I was just telling my students this morning, you know, whole counsel of God, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm cross-reference, you see harmony there. And we could look at a scripture verse like 1 Corinthians 11, 3, where Paul pretty much says the same thing. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So there's a clear order, like you were talking about. There's order and a clear leadership call in the home And notice, it doesn't say in the scripture that the wife is the head of the husband or the man. It just doesn't teach that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just the plain, we call it clarity of scripture. It's just the plain truth. You don't see it. And of course, as Christ is the head of the church and husbands are head of their own wives, wives are called right out of the gate, (laughs) right when I started, (laughs) are called to be subject or to subject themselves to their own husbands as unto the Lord. And the Greek word that we often come across is hypotasso, right? Mm -hmm. We've taught on this before, you and I, many times. And what does it mean? I mean, it's just this idea that as wives, we're voluntarily arranging ourselves or placing ourselves under our husband's leadership, or if if you were to use it more, because it's used in other areas as well, it's just that idea of coming under authority, Mm-hmm. Um, voluntarily. And in the context of Ephesians 5, of course, Paul's talking about the wife coming under or placing themselves under their husband's leadership. And I think what's important to note here is that submission is actually very important to God. It's in Scripture in a lot of different places for a lot of different reasons. It's not just a command that's been put in Scripture for wives. In fact, if you back up just one verse, verse 21 in Ephesians 5 Paul is talking to the church at large, and he's saying that as Christians, we're to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so all Christians are subject to one another. And when we are subject to one another, 
in that way, it has this impact of honoring the Lord, you Mm -hmm. know, which is our fondest ambition, right? But specifically in our passage, especially verses 22 and 24, the command there is for the believing wife to be subject to or ranked under her own husband. And, you know, the question could be why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. Couldn't be any clearer than that. And that is compared to Christ being the head of the church, his body. Now, having said that, I should I want to be clear in pointing out that submission to your own husband doesn't mean you're a slave to your own husband. I've taught this topic cross-culturally, and there's a lot of misunderstandings in other parts of the world as well. Interesting. They do sometimes um, interpret it that way. I would beckon to say that when wives are in submission to their husbands, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, when we're even submission in submission to our leadership in our church, I actually believe that women are more freed up to be who God has called them to be, and in the context of marriage, that would be helper suitable. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful place to be. And so that's one thought. But submission to your husband also does not mean that we never open our mouth and have an opinion because there are some women out there that really believe that that they can't even dialogue, talk through issues, give advice, have an opinion. I don't think that this passage is teaching that we can't do those things either. I mean, I'm in counseling, right? And so, you know, it's, so I have seen, I've heard women take on that particular view, but really as a married couple as issues come up in our marriages or in our families, as a wife, we should be able to give our insights and our opinions in a loving and respectful manner. But when the discussion is over, at the end of the day, the hope is that the husband will give that decision leadership. In fact, one way I help women to hand over the reins, so to speak, because there is that sense in which we desire to control is and and sometimes you we can be married to men that have a hard time taking leadership. Right. It's a good practice to have a dialogue, what work through an issue and then say and allow your husband to just say to your husband, you know, I'm looking forward to you giving this leadership. Mm-hmm. And and then just leaving it at that and just trusting the Lord through that. That's to, that's really hard for women, you know, to do that want to be in control. Them. That you trust their leadership, right. that you're you're completely comfortable and confident in what's going to happen. That's really helpful. It actually shows respect, and husbands really thrive under that. It's also important to note that when we're in being in submission to our husbands, it doesn't mean that you're lesser than or you're somehow inferior. I think the culture actually spins that. And tries to make, and that's crept into, you know, Christianity, of course, the egalitarian view, but you're not lesser than your husband. I mean, if you really are reading the scriptures on a regular basis, you know, when you're in the gospels, especially, you'll recall that Jesus himself, of course, he's not inferior to his parents, but when he was a child, you know, he submitted to his own parents. He's not inferior to God the Father because he's God himself, right? Right. But he gave himself fully to God the Father because his mission was to do the will of the Father. So he didn't do anything on his own initiative when he was on earth. He really sought to do the Father's will. So we find him in Scripture submitting to his parents as a child and submitting to God the Father in everything. 
And as we've already discussed last week, we know from great verses like Galatians 3.28, especially that the husband and wife, the believing husband and wife are all one in Christ. We're, we're all have the same position in Christ as in Christ ones. But to keep order and harmony in the family, there is a division of responsibilities in the home. I think it's taught really clearly as to the home. We would, it, the scripture says that the husband's responsibility is to lead and to sacrificially love his wife as Christ loves and leads the church because he sacrificially gave himself up for her. And the wife's responsibility is to make herself submissive to her own husband as unto the Lord, which can be taken two ways. I think it's important because I, I love to make sure that we don't leave out as unto the Lord. Right. Because that can be misunderstood as well. First, you know, a wife's submission to her husband is in the context of her spiritual submission to Christ. It's an important thing to point out. So when a wife refuses to submit, she allows us that idol of control usually to take over, and she mm-hmm. wants to be your husband's Holy Spirit or whatever. She is, in essence, sinning in rebellion against Christ himself, because at the end of the day, she's not in submission to Christ. But when she does submit to her husband out of love for Christ out of love for her husband, she's obeying Christ. And that's a beautiful thing, like you were saying. It's a beautiful thing. There's harmony. It's a good thing. Secondly, wives were called to submit to their own husbands, unless, here's the caveat, they ask them to sin. Right. And we can talk about a whole lot of areas that Mm -hmm. I've seen in counseling where that is the case. You don't submit blindly. Right. It's as unto the Lord. If your husband asks you to sin... You know, David says, hey, let's go rob a bank or something like that. Falsify I, the taxes. The wife has to the sign ta- them, I mean, right? There's yeah, so there's many, so many. There's so many areas that we could talk about where that would be the case. We know mm-hmm. what sin is. Then in that case, we're also dealing with a brother in Christ. So like with any other sister or brother in Christ, you just respectfully deny the request, as it were, because you're really obviously called to obey God rather than man, you know. Absolutely. So it says under the Lord. That really is what Paul has in mind and why it's even on that command to begin with. So, you know, again, when husbands are engaging in being the head of their own wives and sacrificially loving them and giving leadership in the home and protecting them, and wives are being submissive to their own husbands by coming under that authority and being that wonderful helper suitable, The marriage reflects this beautiful picture of what Paul gives of Christ being the head of the church who sacrificially gave himself up for her and the church in respectful response, bringing herself voluntarily under his loving, protective authority and obeying, I like to say, out of love and reverence for him. Mm -hmm. Paul uses Christ in the church as being like a beautiful marriage relationship between husband and wife, you know, and and my boss usually say you have a marriage that sings, you know. Harmony. A heart, because you're in harmony. Yeah. And I think it's just beautiful. So one quick mention before I turn it over to you, Kim, is to mention the two views within complementarianism today, which are the narrow view and the broad view. These are definitions that were created by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who chose them, and it's helpful to describe. And so I just thought it'd be interesting just to kind of throw it out there. But I, like you, just prefer, (laughs) just to say complementarianism, I don't necessarily go one side or the other. I mean, there's some on both sides that I agree with, let's put it that way. But to put it in simple terms, 
the first view is just that narrow complementarian view. And, and in essence, what they believe is, is that headship in the home is narrowly applied to ordination and in marriage. And so they're, they're getting their definition or their view from 1 Timothy 2.12, right? Something you're going to talk about in a mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. They're saying that narrowly speaking, that women are in that verse in particular, that women are just being prohibited from taking the office of pastor. So it's narrowly applied. That's what they mean by ordination. But a broad complementarian view teaches that headship reflects more of a comprehensive set of differences between men and women that have broader implications not only as it applies to how we conduct ourselves in church, but also in our homes, but they would add also the impact that it has on society at large. Okay, so they stretch it into society as well. You know, they might embrace, for example, the belief that wives are to be at home and not in the workforce at all, even if there are children, even if their children are grown. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that that's a biggie. They might also typically say that divorce is wrong, even when there's biblical grounds. They Many of them would hold to that view. Right. So, you know, as far as 1 Timothy 2.12, and I'm glad you're going to cover it today, I would just embrace the view that Paul is just is is doing more than just prohibiting women. I mean, there's two functions mentioned. It's teaching and exercising authority over men, right? Mm-hmm. It comes up a lot, First Timothy 2.12, when the broad and narrow camps are arguing back and forth. I've, too, read, read a lot of articles, and I see that back and forth. But you want to give us some biblical insight on that, Kim? Where should we land biblically when it comes to First Timothy 2.12 and the like? Where, where, would we, where should we go with that? Sure. In the church, we see that, like you said, complementarianism follows 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 3 through 7 and Titus 2, 2 through 6 as the biblical model for the church. And so because of time, I just want to pick up specifically where it is addressing women. Okay. Because this is the Women's Hope Podcast. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So in verse 11 of... 1 Timothy 2, it says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Oh, there's that word submit again, huh? (laughs) Hello. So here we are. We are seeing women to be learners. We are placing ourselves under the authority of sound biblical teaching. And we are learning and growing and submitting to it. How? beautiful as that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and how, you know, how much is there to distort from that one little verse? It's very, very clear, as you said, it is clear. And then it says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. So the men in the church bear the responsibility to provide the spiritual leadership and training. And what a responsibility that is in this day and age, right? Exactly. On a good day, it's hard work and requires faithful men of God, as we heard last night at graduation. But the women 
have the ability to exercise their spiritual gifts in any way that scripture allows. Just as God said in Genesis, you may eat of any, right? But wait, not this one. So we, much like Eve, we have all of these gifts that he gives us that we are able to use in the proper context of what scripture allows. And so I think, again, it comes to what you said about attitude and the way we receive things. And we view these definitions like headship and order with this cultural mindset. We think that these words are derogatory, right? And they're not meant as derogatory. And if anything, just as we saw in Genesis, it was for protection. Yeah. And so when we step aside from that, we're in dangerous territory, just as Eve was. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that word allow. I spent a little bit of time on that. And every time that it's used in the New Testament, it's speaking of permitting people to do what they want to do. But what does it say? I do not allow. So we are not to do whatever we want to do. We are to do what Scripture says we are allowed to do. Gotcha. And I thought that that was really important that Paul chose this word that implies that some women in Ephesus were desiring to teach and to have authority. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. (laughs) And it's no different today. And this is why we need this clarity. We're told in this passage, as I said, be learners. What a privilege Mm -hmm. to be a learner, a student of God in his word, and to have Christ as our teacher. It is magnificent. It is a wonderful privilege. As learners, we will be able to better fulfill these roles that God has given us as his adopted daughters. It's a beautiful thing. So when men and women are filling their God-given roles within the church, Christ is honored. And in fact, the church itself becomes what it is designed to be, a living picture of Christ's body. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. With the opposing view of egalitarianism that teaches in Christ there's no longer gender distinctions, this idea that you mentioned in our last episode is really salvific, right? Yeah. This this is not an issue of roles, okay? Egalitarianism sees gender distinctions as a result of the fall. We read Genesis 1. It's not in Genesis 2. It was that way from the beginning before the fall. Yeah. So it doesn't get any plainer than that. The goal of this is to bring unity really in our our salvation and not in our roles. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, is there harmony? Yes, absolutely. But the unity in Galatians 3 is about salvation. Yeah. It's, it's not about the wife being every bit as in charge in the home as the man. Mm-hmm. There's order. Yeah, We place ourselves willingly under our husbands. 
Yeah, the importance of good hermeneutics. (laughs) It is so important. It is so important. So Paul really sides with the complementarians by citing the order of creation in this passage, 1 Timothy 2.13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Mm -hmm. Unlike in our first episode when we talked about feminism, when she said, was it Katie Stanton said they were created simultaneously yeah, at the same right. time? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that was totally wrong. So, ladies, a difference in roles does not equate a difference in equality or quality or importance or value. Men and women are equally valued in God's sight and in his plan. Complementarians seeks to preserve the biblical difference between men and women's roles while valuing the quality and importance of both genders. And don't we see this the waters of that being muddied by the world and it's just seeping into the church? Mm -hmm. And this is why we have to look different. And it matters. So please, Shelby, (laughs) why does it matter? Oh, it matters. It definitely matters. And one of the reasons why it matters is because when we do strive to live according to what God has taught us in his word, we do look different than the world. Mm -hmm. And we're called to look different Mm -hmm. than the world, thereby becoming a billboard for the gospel. I love that. Yeah, that's something that's been in my mind for many years. I'm always mindful of that. I think it comes out of probably Titus 3, but what comes to mind is even a passage in Titus 2 where God, where Paul is reminding the believer that God is the one who brought salvation to us out of his kindness and his Mm -hmm. mercy, Mm -hmm. um, which instructs the, the believer to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. He really wants us to be different. We're in the present age looking forward to the second coming of Christ. So as Christ's church, as his body, we are to be set apart. That's so important. And we are to look differently than the world. That is God's will for our lives, not to look like the world. We're in the world, but we're not to look like the world. And when we obey him and his word in that way, it does bring glory to his name. So that's that's why it matters. I mean, even Jesus talks to us about being, as his disciples, being like lights of the world from Matthew 5, right? And part of our job as disciples of Christ is to shine before men. And by shining, just meaning, you know, the good works that we're saved into, engaging in those things, and thereby glorifying God as a result. And one way that we shine our good works before a dying world is for the men to lead their wives well and to love them as Christ loves the church and to lead our churches well, just like we heard at the graduation mm-hmm. last night, that charge that that John MacArthur gave the men, I think from 1 Timothy 6, if I recall. And for wives, I think just to be content with mm. the role that God has given you, it's a wonderful role. Like you said, God refers to himself as a helper. Mm-hmm. and to happily bring themselves under leadership just as under the Lord, you know, wives. And so bottom line, as disciples of Christ, we model for the world what it means to live in subjection to our Savior, and that brings much glory to God. It honors Christ, and it brings harmony mm-hmm. to our marriages. 
So I think that's why it matters. And it's encouraging. It really is. When we stop and we look at the scriptures, we see the hope that comes from it because we're not living for the here and now. We are looking forward to another day. That's right. And where it won't, these roles will not be stained by sin. Well, the roles will be gone, actually. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so we are we are living for another day. And we, as Charles Spurgeon says, we want to bring everybody with us that we can. Mm-hmm. And we get to do that through our marriages and through the church. And it's a privilege. Absolutely. And I just think it's so encouraging, Shelby. Sadly, we see more of a man-centered opposed to a God-centered promotion of our billboards Mm -hmm. today, and we want to have a God-centered view of the gospel, and he is looking at the big picture, Mm -hmm. and we want to all place ourselves under that and obey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who am I drawing attention to in my service, within my marriage, and within my local church, is it me? Is it women's rights? Or is it Christ's work on my behalf? Am I drawing attention that will tell the story of the gospel? Or is it the Kim and Shelby show, right? Yeah, exactly. And so as we close, I just want us to, to stop and think, who am I really serving in my homes, uh, in our churches, right? Mm-hmm. Who are we really serving? And with that thought, I hope you carry it with you through the day. And whatever you do, whether it's changing diapers, whether it is in the workforce, that you will ask yourself, who am I serving? Amen. Well, that concludes our episode. And we will be back next time, Lord willing, with just a few myths about what some people think complementarian is that really misrepresent complementarianism. And we look forward to being with you then. But until next time, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening to the Women's Hope podcast of the Masters University. For more resources and episodes, visit masters.edu slash women's hope. For more information on the Masters University, visit masters.edu. We'll see you next time.